episode 397 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. The views that are going to be expressed here today do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our firms, our families, or our friends, and not even mine, because I am not going to be able to join you. I am caught up in a, a client trip to the boot heel of Arizona, and then an effort to convey the joy of cross-country skiing to grandchildren, having completely failed to convey it to children. So I am out this week. Uh, Mark McCarthy is going to take over. Uh, so uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy a more or less Baker-free Cyber Law Podcast. Thanks, Stuart. I'm Mark McCarthy with Georgetown and Brookings, and sitting in for Stuart. And joining me today is an all-star cast of commentators. You've got uh, Dave Itell, a well-known security expert currently with Cytocorp Systems and founder of the ITEL Foundation. You've got uh, Sultan Meiji, uh, an expert in uh, AI and security, who's with the Cyber Policy Initiative of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a professor at Washington University. We've got Gus Hurwitz, a professor of law at the Nebraska College of Law, and Nick Weaver with the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley. Welcome all. So this week, the war in Ukraine continues with strong resistance from Ukraine itself and slow advances by Russia. We're going to be looking at this conflict largely through the lens of tech and, and media. And perhaps the most striking development uh, is the growing gulf between the information and communication systems in the U.S. and its allies and the outlets based in, in Russia. The news was filled with references to a new iron curtain falling across Europe, a digital curtain, as one of my friends, Adam Eisgrau, said to me the other day. But let's start with the tech boycott. Over the weekend, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and PayPal suspended their services in Russia, joining an array of companies withdrawing from the Russian economy. And of course, the tech companies are no exception to this. There, too, are pulling back from offering service in Russia, and that includes Apple, Samsung, Microsoft, and Adobe, and, and Cogent, an internet backbone provider, uh, has also said that it's pulling its service from its Russian customers. Gus, you've been following these uh, developments. You want to give us an update? Uh, I mean, the, the basic update is, as you say, um, everyone's disconnecting and uh, pulling their operations out of Russia. Probably the, in many ways, immediately most impactful of these are the media and social media companies that are taking Russian media outlets off of their platforms. So we've seen Google and uh, Facebook meta blocking RT and Sputnik, for instance, from their platforms and also from uh, news feeds and uh, news sites. So you can't go and download Sputnik or RT from the, the Play Store anymore. So th this is cutting off the Russian directed propaganda machines access to the US uh, media market. And it's really the US social media market, I should say. And it's really worth emphasizing that it appears these are uh, just whole scale, the entire platform, the entire source is being removed. This isn't a, we're filtering problematic stories or uh, individual speakers or anything that's uh, uh, deep content focused. It's just RT is no longer on these platforms. 
Yeah, I, I think that's aimed largely at trying to do some damage to the Russian economy. But uh, Russia itself has been taking some steps to control its independent news and social media outlets uh, in Russia itself. They, they adopted a new law that uh, allows for a prison sentence of, of 15 years if a person is found guilty of peddling false information about the actions of the Russian army. And the media regulator ordered the closure of various Russian outlets and blocked access to the websites of foreign media companies, including the, the BBC and Facebook was blocked itself. Journalists from the news agencies have stopped broadcasting for fear of running afoul of the new law. And TikTok itself said it was suspending live posts from, uh, from Russia. The target here appears to be the Russian people to make sure that the Russian government's view of the conflict uh, is the one that's shared by the vast majority of the Russian people. Hey, Nick, tell us about the Russian crackdown. What's going on there? So basically, it looks like they are trying to control the information space internally. So there was reporting in the New York Times just the other day about how Ukrainians are frustrated with Russian relatives who don't understand what's actually going on. And that's how successful they have been at filtering. But it's driven by necessity that if we look at the physical war, it's currently stalemate slash Russian advantage. But the information war, the Ukrainians have just been killing it. And so Russia really has no choice but to cut any feeds from the outside world that risk popping that bubble because... 40 miles of stalled Russian convoys would not play well in the current uh, Russian information ecosystem. That's absolutely right. Hey, Gus, you, you mentioned something that is very interesting that involves Russia perhaps disconnecting itself from the internet. There were reports that Russia was going to require all servers and domains to transfer to the Russian zone. Is that uh, something that's uh, related to this effort to control the internal Russian media environment? Uh, absolutely. And uh, I, I've only seen an initial report about this. And I, I think something that has to be emphasized right now, and what we'll talk about this more ex explicitly, is that we're operating in a, a fog of war environment with a lot of uh, real-time information that may or may not be right. But I, I did see a translation of a memo that was circulated yesterday um, that is planning for effectively Russia to disconnect from the global internet, transferring all of the root zones to Russian, so the, the domain name system to Russian controlled domain name servers and doing an inventory of all of the physical infrastructure in the country so that Russia can literally disconnect its internet from the rest of the global internet and truly have uh, control over its information ecosystem and environment in a really unprecedented way. There's a term I, I remember uh, several years ago in the United States, we have spoken for a long time about the balkanization of the internet. The idea that the, the global internet is going to break up into multiple separate regional internets. And I, I remember several years ago, I was at a meeting with a EU representative at the American Enterprise Institute and someone referred to the balkanization of the internet and uh, this individual stopped. And he just looked at the speaker and said, you, you Americans refer to the balkanization of the internet. And 
I just have to tell you that that is a really problematic term because uh, it refers to the Balkan region and the wars there, and it's not a peaceful term. Um, and I think actually in this context, it's moderately more appropriate to refer to what uh, Russia is anticipating doing as a, a true balkanization, a violent severing of the Russian internet from the rest of the, the global uh, internet. We, we might want to avoid the controversy of that term, though, and just talk uh, maybe more neutrally about the splinternet, which, or the bordered internet, which we can get into a little bit more later. The U.S. you know, has been doing its part in, in, in the severing connections with the Russian media. We've got some uh, access, restrictions and access of our own, but in the U.S. we've sort of outsourced that to the private sector rather than imposing them directly by government action. And the first casualty was RT America, the 24-hour English language news channel. DirecTV dropped it and the channel shut down its offices and laid off its staff. Facebook has removed uh, RT News account, as did Telegram. It's still available on Twitter, and its website is still accessible in the United States, but not so in, in Europe. In Europe, the blackout is, is legal. On, on Monday, the EU officially shut down RT and Sputnik, and it's not just their over-the-air broadcast and satellite stations that there are being shut down. It's the transmission or distribution by any means, including, of course, a cable and satellite, but IPTV, internet service providers, internet video sharing platforms or applications. It's an entire restriction across the media environment, not just over the air broadcasting and satellite. How is this going to work? Nick, you, you've been looking a little bit into this, how it might be actually enforced in Europe. We know what they want to do, but do they have an enforcement issue that would make it difficult for them to make sure that the RT website, for example, isn't available to users in Europe? Well, it really depends on what level of levers they have on various infrastructure. So cable, satellite, that's easy. They've pulled the broadcast licenses and it's going dark. Web infrastructure on major third parties, you get the third party to revoke, like YouTube or uh, Twitter. But you do have the issue there of sometimes the companies will push back, sometimes they won't. For general web access, though, that's hard unless you want to fully turn on a network censorship regime. Many of the countries actually have the infrastructure in place for other purposes. So for example, UK in particular has a very aggressive internet censorship apparatus that's only used against child exploitation materials. They could, if they wanted to, turn it on against RT, but it would be really hard and controversial. Mm -hmm. So it's unclear whether they'll be able to stop the websites or whether you really want to that let's face it rt is a really good humor site it's up there with the onion these days <laughs> yeah it, it, it may be overkill it's hard to believe that the information on rt is actually changing many minds that disinformation campaigns seem to be much more indirect and subtle than that but still it's striking that they're attempting to close off the entire range uh, of distribution systems to Russian media. 
It's also uh, worth uh, just briefly noting, Mark, you mentioned that we're not doing this in the United States and we're only seeing in Europe. Uh, just as a, a matter perhaps of historical curiosity or for those of us who might be more uh, alarmist and uh, protectionist about First Amendment issues, listeners might uh, be interested in 47 U.S.C. 606 or Section 706 of the Communications Act, which uh, is the War Powers Act, which actually right. gives uh, the president substantial power over media that's regulated by the FCC during times of war or periods of uh, intense and heightened national security concern. That's not the term of art in the statute. But we do actually have legal frameworks in place in the United States for similar sorts of uh, media restrictions. And yet we, we haven't had to use them. It's, it's been, as I say, outsourced to the private sector to accomplish that. The result seems to be roughly about the same. I want to go back to the point that you raised earlier, Gus, about the information wars. There's a nagging concern that much of the uh, uplifting material that you can see about the Ukraine conflict on social media is fictional. It appears to be the case with the the ghost of Kiev, and a lot of people on TikTok think that they're seeing the war in real time, and they're actually seeing video game footage and soundtracks from well over a year ago. So uh, it's the first TikTok war, at least it's been called that, but it, not all, all of it may be real on TikTok. You, you've been reflecting on this fog of war problem, Gus. What, what, what do you think is going on? So first, there, there are much more sophisticated commentators than me on this, but I'll, I'll offer a couple of thoughts. First, th this is all perfectly normal wartime stuff. For, we have the ordinary fog of war, hard to know what is and isn't accurate information. But it's a little different how it plays out on the internet at real time. The thing that's had me really reflecting on this was for an inappropriately jocular turn of phrase here, the absolute Twitter meltdown the other day about the potential literal meltdown of a nuclear power plant. In There was a firefight there, there was a fire, but the, the Ukrainian, I, I think it was the Minister of Defense, made a statement that it was under attack and could explode and it would be a hundred times worse than Chernobyl. And that was at best hyperbole. It was probably more accurately misinformation. And just watching the entire thing play out and watching the discussion online very often, I'm finding myself wondering, and I think this is healthy, is this real information? Is all the pro-Ukraine information that I'm seeing uh, in US media and uh, online media channels, is this accurate? Is this hyperbole? Is this just outright misinformation? And, and it makes it a, a fascinating intellectual experience to be trying to parse all this information in real time. And it makes it really complicated for social media companies like TikTok to know how to handle the flood of what they perceive to be misinformation. Should they be taking it down? Should they be uh, labeling it? Or should they just leave it up and uh, recognize that they're in something of an unusual situation and try not to uh, uh, interfere too much in, in the way the situation develops uh, on their own platform. And mythology and morale go closely hand in hand. They are tied together. And in, in a wartime battle environment, those on the front lines, those in the battles, those living this, they rely on stories for all sorts of reasons. And we rely on fiction in peacetime for all sorts of really valuable social reasons. The, the Ghost right. of Kiev, it's um, 
almost certainly a made-up story, but it's a powerful story, and it's an important story, and it's uh, a helpful story to have for those who are actually there experiencing this, and we, we don't want to turn those stories off. I think that's right, but it raises a much larger question whether our primary value in this area is truth and accuracy or whether it's you know useful mythmaking. And it creates a very tough situation for the, uh, the social media companies, not to say for the users themselves. The other thing we've seen in the second week of the war is that Russia has still not launched major cyber attacks against Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine has claimed that its own IT army is taking down key Russian sites. There's another development in the Conti ransomware gang where they're facing an internal exploit of its own. Dave, you've been following some of these things. You want to fill us in on developments? I think the first thing I would say is just as you're getting, you know, a very fog of war view on what the reality is on the ground in Ukraine, you're going to get the exact same level of fog when it comes to cyber operations. And it sort of is true that we are not seeing some aspects of the cyber operations that we expected. But of course, it's also true that people in the cyber policy world have uh, been noted to be a little bit hyperbolic, shall we say, like about some of these things, right? So, and it's interesting also that there's a lot going on that we are not recognizing as cyber war that's making a huge difference. And the one I would really point to is the satellite hack that's being sort of only like even though it happened at the exact same time the, that Russia initiated the full-scale attack on Ukraine, we are just starting to understand it now. So at that time, tens of thousands of KASAT SATCOM terminals suddenly stopped working in Germany, Ukraine, Greece, Hungary, Poland. And where we started getting reporting on this was wind turbines that were no longer able to connect to their SCADA networks. But that doesn't mean that was the intended target of the attack or the intended effect. This could have been a side effect and almost certainly was a side effect of something else. So a lot of the sort of what is a effective cyber attack doesn't look like what we would expect, right? Like you're not seeing, you know, pipelines blow up or various other things. You, you may be mm -hmm. seeing impact in those areas. So I would say that's where I would start is just because a cyber attack that you expected to see didn't happen doesn't mean cyber attacks aren't happening that you aren't seeing necessarily. So that's the first step. The second step is the story on Conti, as you said, right? And I think we should put that in context. The Conti ransomware group, which by all reporting is one of like, if not the largest, one of the largest ransomware groups, we're talking they make something like $180 million a year, which is a pretty sizable sum. And of course, they're based in Russia. And they released a statement on Twitter or via Telegram where they were like, we support the Russian war and we look forward to doing our part. And then the next day they released a separate statement that said, actually, we were kidding. We thought it was, you know, just something to say, right? So take backs are fair, right? So the interesting thing about that, though, is that when they released that report, the day after, their internal communications were leaked. A lot, like all of them, a lot of them, which was really revealing 
and look, describes everyone involved, describes all the operational details that go into running a ransomware group. Extremely interesting. They have a whole team for buying uh, software that they need to test against. I mean, they operate like any penetration testing team would in some senses, right? They're buying penetration testing tools. They're managing their business. They're doing a lot of work. It's fascinating to see the insides of that. Obviously, you have to translate it from Russian, which several people have done. And we're going we're gonna to see the effects of that as we sort of go forward because more and more analysis is happening. So, you know, these are all fascinating aspects of it. I would say not everything is what it looks like. Yeah, that's I'd a great... Just, yeah, Nick, jump, you can jump in. I'd just like to add a couple of things. In terms of the business analysis, Brian Krebs does great work on this in general and is focusing particularly on this. So if you want to figure out how bad guys run and or run your own, look at the series he's been doing. The other thing that's interesting is it really also starts to emphasize that these ransomware gangs in Russia do have at least some level of formal government affiliation because one of the things apparently revealed in the transcript was that the Conti gang specifically targeted Bellingcat as a information gathering operation that would be deniable if caught. Which puts them on the menu essentially as you know, a valid target for espionage or even uh, counteraction by, you know, United States forces, which is, is a fairly important policy point for those of us following the sort of cyber policy world on these things. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot more going on here than the general press seems to be acknowledging, and we'll have to stay tuned how it develops over the next couple of weeks. Hey, hey Nick, while, while we got you, I, I want you to talk a little bit about the cryptocurrencies. Uh, People have been talking about them as possible ways around the, the financial sanctions, and uh, other people have just been poo-pooing that. What's the story there? The people poo-pooing it are right. I am not a fan of the cryptocurrency space. I think it should be yeeted into the sun, even though that's more energetically costly than throwing it into deep space. We don't want to inflict it on aliens either. But it's just too small and too hard to hide in, that you can hide a $5 million ransom payment as long as you have corrupt Eastern European exchanges willing to cash that out into cash. The Treasury has been cracking down on the latter, and it's still only $5 million. In terms of trying to evade major sanctions, it, it'll be good for an oligarch to maybe export 5 to $10 million without being noticed that they didn't already have in shell companies in the Seychelles. But in terms of major sanctions avoidance it's just too small too noisy or too easy to track you need mm -hmm. to be able to hide in the casino gaming that goes on and the casino gaming is just not that big enough so as yeah, much as i love things to bash cryptocurrency with this is not it it's yeah they not seem to have matter. gotten the worst of uh, of both possible worlds they've got the suspicion of all the policymakers as an outlaw's way of avoiding sanctions without having any real ability to deliver. Sultan, you've been thinking about the, the impact of the sanctions. A lot of people are speculating that this is the beginning of the division of the world or maybe the acceleration of the division of the world into separate economic blocks as, as countries look at what happened to Russia's central bank and say, you know, that's not something I want to have happen to me. China's got you know $3 trillion of reserves and a wise central bank at this point might want to say, how do I avoid the United States and its allies? Is there something to this financial decoupling idea, Sultan? 
A- absolutely. I mean, it's difficult, I think, for us to realize just how quickly the dollar is actually becoming not the dominant currency. So I'm old enough to remember back when the dollar was 75, 80% of global reserve currency. Now it's at 59% and going down, you know, a percent and a half a year. And that seems to be accelerating a little bit. And you look at the evolution of that. And by the way, add everything Nick said about crypto, which for the most part, I agree with 75% of what he said, although I, I don't feel like it's a problem energetically shooting it into space because it's still going to suck all the energy out of it anyway. You look at what crypto is doing and, and how much assets are actually in crypto right now. We're roughly at $2 trillion. You know, That's a year or two ahead of schedule. We're looking at $4 trillion. It becomes a really interesting discussion to say, if I am a mid-size country and I am nervous about being held to, to ransom in essence by a couple of companies in the United States or something like that because I'm not on whatever has gone viral this week. And, and that is, I was trying to come up with a, a pithy line about going viral related to, uh, to the Splinter Net discussion. But I, I feel since we're still technically in a pandemic, that's probably in bad form. Probably not bad. Yeah, bad. Don't go there. Yeah, bad form. But I think, you know, just at a, at a high level, I would say between the growth of crypto the very effective post-sanctions utilization of, of economic policy and some sort of fundamental transformation over the next five years or so into a fully digital backbones of, of currency, whether it's fiat or not, we're at a moment where the de-dollarization of the world is a conversation we should all be you know, having. So it's interesting. The, the economist jumped in on this one and said, you know, it really is important for the U.S. and its allies to develop principles to constrain the use of these financial weapons. You have to do something to reassure people. Otherwise, people will begin to move outside of the U.S.-based system. Is there any life in this uh, kind of principles-based approach to, uh, to that kind of thing? You know, as someone who has spent a decent amount of time in the regulatory system, I would say we need to think about these issues. You know, I, I have been quoted as saying we have a lot of analog decision makers trying to make digital decisions. And, and so anything that restarts to reframe the playing field from 1987 is going to be valuable. Do I think principles-based activity is useful? I mean, we've seen it be successful, for example, in the anti-spam fight a few years ago. Mm-hmm. We've seen it mm-hmm. be successful in certain, I would call it, less stressful environments. As someone who's also, by the way, a member of Bretton Woods, I think it's a great place for central banks to talk. I'm not sure it actually has direct meaning in a timeline that that's necessarily meaningful. Got it. Hey, Gus, do you want to jump in? I, I was wondering, uh, Sultan, if you have any thoughts on lessons that we're learning about financial versus supply chain uh, decoupling, because I, Russia is just being hit so hard on both sides. And I've been trying to sort through is the financial central bank impact or the, the lack of ability, access to technology to repair cars and oil pipelines, the bigger hit they're taking. I, I have been thinking about this, guys. It's a fantastic question. And over a, a cocktail the other night, I came to the realization that I think it's supply chain that's actually going to be more impactful. And we're going to see it when we look at how many people start going hungry in the fall in, in Europe. That to me is, is the biggest thing we've got to worry about because all of this infrastructure relies on technology. And I think we're going to start seeing, you know, some of these systems start to crumble in the coming months. Nick, you want to jump in? 
And I worry that in some ways it cuts both ways, that if you look at Russia, they are probably three weeks away from no commercial airliners flying. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Russia is such an exporter of fertilizer that that's going to have a global impact as well, as well as the just raw wheat exports from both Russia and Ukraine being disrupted. It's going to be ugly. Yeah, Nick, I'm 100% on board with that concern. I, I think, you know, if we go back and we look at the the crypto discussion we just had, and you tie it into this, the biggest issue I worry about is that the Russians are going to be forced into a situation. And then our friend Xi over in Beijing is going to be forced to respond to say, well, I'll ship stuff your way, I'll ship technology, right. I'll make sure your trains keep running, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And that will become the avenue for Russian sanctions avoidance under a humanitarian umbrella or some version of that. You know, keep the Russian people from starving, but this is how all of a sudden a, a bunch of the now frozen checkbook that Putin and his buddies have actually gets used. Yeah, it, it looks as though the implications and ramifications of, of decoupling supply chain financial information are, are yet to be fully understood. We're going to have to see how this plays out over the next several months. But, you know, actually, more things than Ukraine were happening uh, this week. So why don't we turn to some of the other developments? And one of them was President Biden's first State of the Union address. Uh, he, he took 20 minutes to talk about Ukraine, and then he went off uh, to uh, some other topics. Gus, you've been, you've been looking at this. What struck you in the president's State of the Union address? I think the most notable thing to me was how much it was about tech and big tech and uh, tech adjacent issues. The CEO of Intel and uh, Francis Huygen, the Facebook, now Meta whistleblower, were guests in the, the box with uh, the First Lady. And those are very, there's a very small number of seats up there. Those are very high profile positions to put a couple of guests in and uh, give them references in the address. So the president's eye is very much on these issues. And it's worth noting that the Intel piece is about supply chains and onshoring semiconductor manufacturing. And of course, the Facebook piece is about regulating big tech and social media in particular. Yeah, it's really interesting that uh, you should uh, choose to focus on, on online children's privacy. It's one of those areas where the, the stars align and you might think nothing can happen. But when you put kids together with the internet, you, you often get legislation. The first online privacy law that we passed back in 1998 was the Children's Online Privacy Act. And so the president moving ahead to try to uh, upgrade the thinking about revised legislation in that area, I think may indicate that there's some life in those initiatives. I was just going to mention Section 230 and 223, which was uh, deemed unconstitutional in the uh, mid-1990s. They were prompted largely by the famous uh, Time magazine uh, cyber porn front page cover, which was all about online safety for children. There you go, Nick. Also, that there's been such recent studies showing by a colleague, Serge Eggelman, of how just all the apps for children are just willfully violating COPA, and that's going to further add fuel to the uh, fire on regulating that space. Watch that space. I think there's something coming at us in that area. Also, Congress took some steps this week. It was perhaps surprising to see Congress pass uh, a bill. Actually, it's just the Senate, but it, they acted unanimously. They passed a 
a cybersecurity bill, but without a single dissenting vote. Sultan, what's this bill and why is it so popular? And by the way, why did DOJ come out in opposition to it? I mean, gosh, this could be an entire episode unto itself. I mean, so first off, we have to applaud the fact that, you know, we actually are getting movement on this. And I think, you know, everybody on this call would love to see action at the pace of change of a recent reasonable GitHub repository, not measured in terms of years or decades. So I'm really excited to see something. It's imperfect in a lot of different ways. You know, the DOJ isn't unhappy. You know, a lot of the advertisers aren't happy. You know, we again have this issue where they're trying to write quote unquote, simple, very broad legislation that is a little disconnected from reality. And I'll let others, you know, ping on specific issues if they want that annoy them. The thing about this, though, that gets me excited is if you look at what Chris Inglis and people at CISA and some of these other people that have joined the Biden administration over the last year, you got to give them more tools. You've got to give them more tools. You've got to give them more resources. And we've got to spend time educating everybody in this space because the fact is, this is radically altering in terms of the impact, you know, to Gus's supply chain comment, you know, the supply chain of cybersecurity is a global supply chain. And the fact is, is we do not think about critical infrastructure in this country the way we need to as it relates to cyber, whether we're talking about financial services or food supply or any of the other issues we've talked about. There is never going to be that kind of cut the Gordian knot piece of legislation that can just solve it. And then we come back and not worry about it for five years or 10 years. And that's what I think kind of this, uh, this Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act actually does. It tries to be very broad. It tries to do a bunch of stuff, but it, does, it also doesn't touch a bunch of the really critical things that need to be touched. Is this going to go the distance? I mean, uh, is there something on the House side that could uh, marry with it and get to the president's desk before the end of the year? I mean, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> I, I, I do want to like just use my brief time to ask a quick question which is why don't companies want to give the FBI the information the FBI seems to just desperately want I I'm not an FBI agent so I can't answer that I'm also not the head of the FBI or the attorney general I will tell you a few concerns that I've heard whether they're reasonable or not I will leave to others to say but there is a liability question that many companies have to worry about because we have yet to really articulate legally the difference between a platform and an actor on a platform and because of the lack of definitions around both of those there can be a lot of concerns right um, also the Hoovering up of data doesn't actually do anything if you can't analyze it in a thoughtful way, right? So if I have a platform that has 20 million people on it acting five to 10 times a day, which is, by the way, tiny and wouldn't even hit the radar of anything, you're in a situation where, okay, DOJ is asked for it, DOJ is going to get it. Where are they going to put 150 petabytes of this data? And then how are they going to analyze it? I mean, this is kind of what we're seeing with the IRS right now, right? They're asking for all this data that want to do all this stuff. And then we've seen the IRS can kind of struggling to keep the lights on too, right? So I think we're going to be in a situation where the FBI wants everything and then they want the discretion to grab the three or four pieces out of it that they want. Okay, fine. That's how they operate. But just with the volume of data, they're asking for very broad things when in reality that we should figure out how to get it. So they're asking for very narrow things. That would be my major it, So it almost sounds like Companies have a number of issues, but one of them is they don't want to do the FBI's job yeah, for it basically. and sort of run their own investigations. Yeah. Yeah. And I th so I thought it was yeah. very interesting, like how sort of angry the FBI was, which is a member of this administration, against the administration's own bill. Like this was a very weird thing for everyone to witness sort of as, you know, it's sort of like 
very bizarre yeah, and, and in terms the, of dynamic. The, the, over the weekend, the spokesperson for the National Security Council reminded everybody that the administration supports final passage of this bill. We haven't seen an official statement of administration position on it yet, but uh, it's pretty clear this is something the administration wants, despite the FBI concerns. And while we got you, Dave, you know, in, in, there's some uh, movement over in the House Commerce Committee this week, which in a normal week would have made headlines, and this week it was barely a blip, yet it was a legislative hearing on bills that are are, are designed to throw a regulatory net around tech. What's going on with, with these bills? Are they things that are moving in the right direction, or are they problematic? Well, I mean, if you ask most Americans how they feel about Facebook, Google, YouTube, everyone else tracking them like they were insects on a screen... I think most Americans would say that's that's not a great thing. And some of these bills start looking at how to address that. But on the other hand, if you ask the advertisers, they seem very angry about it. And I think the best quote I read from one of the advertisement lobby groups was, they said, in addition, data-driven advertising has been the basis of 100 plus years of economic development and growth. And so that's the sort of the back and forth you're getting. I just thought that was really funny, right? Like there's no reason that there's been 100 years of data-driven advertising. I don't know when Facebook came out, but definitely wasn't 100 years ago, <laughs> right? So like some of this stuff, so the arguments are very weird, right? So you're getting like all sorts of different positions on some of these bills, right? So it's not, it's not just about, when we say big tech accountability, we, we are lumping a number of different sort of positions and political positions under that. And probably, I would say, the only one that has real legs is limiting the impact of what they call surveillance advertising. But even that, it has little tiny millipede legs. It doesn't have, you know, big, strong legs. And I think that there's a few other bills here that we can talk about as well. Yeah, well, let's think of the hearing as focused on surveillance advertising and the, the bills as, as trying to move beyond that. We'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks on this. When we've got legislation all over the place in this area. We've got Section 230 stuff coming up. We've got antitrust stuff coming up. This is just another one in that whole array of regulatory approaches to big tech. But uh, big tech is also facing issues relating to antitrust. So, so, so Gus, you've been following the Amazon-MGM merger, and it looked as though this week there was something of a time frame put onto it with an announcement from Amazon saying, hey, we gave the FTC everything that they were asking for. Does this, does this mean that they, the FTC has to decide very shortly whether it's going to try to block the merger? Well, actually, the time frame was placed on the FTC back in the 1970s as part of the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, which gives the FTC and DOJ the authority to review mergers, certain mergers, before they close. And the headlines saying, things like Amazon forces FTC to decide on an accelerated time frame or what's not. That's a curious way to characterize the law, which requires the FTC and Department of Justice to decide whether to request more information about a transaction within 30 days of being noticed about it, and then gives them 30 days to uh, review information that they request after it's been provided by the companies. So all, all that Amazon did here is they answered the FTC's questions quicker than the FTC perhaps had hoped that they would. And the FTC is on the clock that Congress has established for it. 
Yeah, so this isn't Amazon setting the deadline. It's a statutory deadline. But look, the, the agency is short a commissioner. They've got a 2-2 deadlock. And it doesn't look as though the Senate is going to move on approving a third Democratic commissioner anytime soon. It's at least months away. Won't this prevent the agency from, from challenging the merger? They won't be able to get a challenge out with a two-to-two -two deadlock, will they? All four or three out of the four commissioners agree that it's a potentially problematic transaction. Then they, the fact that the president decided to wait a year before nominating a commissioner and Congress has been slow to get the commissioners moved through the confirmation, that's not on Amazon or any other company's shoulders. And the way that the law works here is companies are allowed to continue operating and doing business. The government has its opportunity to step in if it uh, sees that there's a problem. And just like any other area of government, if uh, the government is moving slowly, that's on the government, not on industry. You make a good point. As an aside, let me note that the, the third nominee for the FTC position, Alvaro Bedoya moved out of the uh, Senate Commerce Committee along with Gigi Sohn, but it was a tie vote of 14 to 14, which means basically several more months of procedural delays before anything can move there. We got one more with Nick. Uh, Nick, you you've, uh, you found a, a, a bad idea, another bad idea emerging from the European Commission's bureaucracy. This one, something called the Digital Identity Framework. What, what's that and, and what's going on with it? Well, it's more one specific sub-piece of the proposal that would require that the web browsers include root certificates provided by the governments, regardless of whether the governments actually follow the rules for proper root certificates. Web browsers are so persnickety about the root certificates that even honest actors like the Pentagon can't get their root installed by default into web browsers. And this is an attempt to mandate it. And the EFF and Mozilla in particular are flagging this because it basically says the governments can at will override the security infrastructure that makes our web secure. And naturally, this is a really scary and stupid idea. Any chance that these objections will be heard and the proposal will be modified before it goes final? I hope so, because Mozilla will only be the first one that the other browsers would say the same thing. So hopefully this will go away. But this is the kind of bad idea that if it doesn't get illuminated, has a chance of passing. So that's why flagging it for... The mm -hmm. audience here is very important because somebody, I didn't know about this until the EFF and Mozilla flagged it. This is a, another public service provided to you by the Cyberlaw Podcast. Uh, so uh, why don't we call it a day for today? Now uh, I'm going to send it back to Stuart. All right. Thank you to Mark McCarthy for a great job of moderating this panel. Uh, thanks also to Gus, Sultan, Nick, and Dave for joining us. It was a great program, and I'm sorry I wasn't there for it. If you've got comments uh, and questions, uh, you can send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We've got a couple of announcements that I wanted to make, and I'll make in a couple of future episodes. First, we've gotten the returns on our questionnaire about 
what we should do about episode 400. And there was a lot of interest in having a in-person recording, but a little bit of uncertainty about whether we could do that in the last gasp of COVID precautions. So we'll, we will do that, but not for a month or two. Meanwhile, on episode 400, we are going to do that as a webinar style event. You'll be able to see us live as we do the uh, podcast. Details will come in future uh, podcast uh, closing statements and in the show notes. So watch for those and be sure to set aside March 28, noon Eastern U.S. time for that live webinar version of the podcast. One more announcement. Jacob Nelson, who has been the esteemed sound and substance engineer for us for uh, several months, is going to finish up his work for us in the summer, which means that there is a job opportunity opening up part-time internship type job, but it will pay something for anybody who wants to learn the podcast, the substance, the sound engineering, the software that we use. If you're interested in doing that or know somebody who uh, might be interested, plenty of time. We'll uh, be replacing Jacob until the very last minute this uh, summer. But if you know somebody who might be interested in doing that, please send your CV or their CV to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 397 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Music